0: Escape Sapiens. In the first episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Greg Swanning, who is a biomedical engineer based at the University of Sydney. Greg worked for Cochlear in the 90s, improving the design of hearing prosthetics, and is now turning his expertise in neurobionics to the much more complicated task of constructing visual prosthetics. Greg very kindly agreed to sit with me to explain some of the technology behind his work. We discussed the history of neuroprosthetics, about what it's like to be implanted with a hearing device about the challenges faced in curing blindness, and about the current state of the art. It was a lot of fun to speak with Greg. I hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say. I last spoke to you, it would be, I was a student of yours. So I I was an undergrad student of yours in Newcastle, and it would have been 10 or 15 years since I last spoke with you. But uh, even back then, I was really excited about the research you're doing. Back then, it seemed sort of sci-fi to me. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to speak with you and, uh, see how things have progressed, uh, in the interim. Um, but I thought what might be best is if you started by just explaining in a little bit of detail, uh, what neurobionics and neuroprosthetics neuroprosth- are before we jump into the specifics of, of what you're working on.
1: Sure. Okay. So when I first learned about this, I, I, I or when I was first learning about it, I, um, I thought that the, the body sort of had something like wires in it that would, say, get the brain to tell the left toe to wiggle or, or do something, um, and the, the whole idea of having, say, a bunch of copper cables in your uh, in your body isn't, isn't too far off. Instead of copper cables, you have these little tubes, more or less, which are associated with nerve cells, and these tubes are called axons, and the axons act like these cables, and when these cables are activated, they send this signal down to, let's say, a muscle. And when it receives that signal, then the muscle contracts. Uh, similarly, if you have uh, vision uh, in, from, from your eye to your brain, if you were able to stimulate one of these axons or one of the cells that's associated with the axons, uh, then you can send a signal off to the brain that's perceived like uh, a little point of light or a little spot of light that we call a phosphine. Uh, it, it works in hearing, so you stimulate the what's called the spiral ganglion cells, and uh, then you can Hear have hearing sensations. You can do it in the visual system and have visual sensations. You can Do it in the mus- uh, in the uh, uh, peripheral nervous system and uh, and stimulate muscles and all all sorts of body functions. So that's the basis of bionics. You can uh, you can apply an electrical signal to these things to to start that that. Uh, uh, start the signal moving towards that's des- its destination uh, but in a sense it's generic throughout the body if you want to stimulate a muscle it's one it's one mechanism it's the same mechanism for for doing that in uh, uh let's say in the optic nerve or in uh, the auditory nerve
0: okay so, and you're you're specifically interested in uh curing paralysis in people's faces and curing loss of vision and also hearing right
1: that's right yeah so we have lots of uh lots of different projects that we're working on, but they all seem to have this common uh, neural element to it.
0: How how did you originally get interested in this? Was it, is it uh, for personal reasons as in, did you have any family members that had uh, paralysis or anything along these lines? Or is it just curiosity and sort of the, the the whole physics of the situation that interests you?
1: Uh, My mother used to work for uh, what they called the blind society. And she would visit with um, uh, with people that were blind and, and she would, when I was younger, she would describe to me how debilitated they were, you know, how, what they could, what their limitations were. Um, but I guess the big inspiration is when I worked at a company called Cochlear, which is in Sydney, and uh, they make auditory devices, uh, so bionic ears, and uh, it was just absolutely fascinating to see how how um, how well people would perform with these things, and uh, you know, little kids that would have otherwise been completely deaf and would have probably had to go to a special school—they uh, could. Uh, uh, what what amazed me the most, and, and I still hear Australian accents because I'm from the United States, but uh, but to have people that were profoundly deaf uh, get this device and uh, and be able to hear so well that they. You know, the little nuances of accents, Uh, you know, sometimes you talk to someone and you think you're from somewhere else. And uh, but that's a really subtle bit of speech and hearing and and they can uh, uh, they can do all that stuff. So it's it's uh, it's really remarkable what they can do. So in keeping with what I was saying before, where you have this sort of generic method of of stimulating things, vision and hearing and muscles and things like that, I thought we could do something like that for vision. And uh, so taking that cochlear implant sort of approach where you, you put electrical impulses into nerve cells and send them off to do something uh, could be applied for vision. And that's, that's sort of what inspired
0: me to, to get into this field. I, I want to, um, before jumping into um, talking about the, uh, the bionic eyes that you're working on, since people are going to be more familiar with the cochlear, i wanted to ask just a few quick questions there if that's all right sure um so you know, it was quite a few decades it was 20 or 30 years ago that you first started at cochlear, right uh
1: yeah 30 yeah 30 years ago
0: so how, how has the technology progressed from when you first started uh to now do we have is, is the devices do they have true true sound now or where, where are we at today and where did it start
1: yeah it's, it's interesting how 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 slow things can be with um uh, with medical devices so the first cochlear implants were single channel devices uh the company that makes post-it notes uh, 3m they were one of the the main uh manufacturers of, of single channel cochlear implants and they uh you could basically tell when there was a noise so if i'm speaking uh, basically all the cochlear implant would tell you was buzz 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 and and maybe if you're looking at, at my mouth moving you could work out what i was saying or at least get the gist of what i was saying they didn't perform very well because it didn't have sort of that dynamic range like a piano It would be basically crunching the same the same key on the piano time after time after time and not being able to change it to any other keys uh, but then in, uh, in various places around the world, including in Melbourne um, and in Austria and uh, various, various other places around the world, they started working with, um, with multi-channel cochlear implants, which basically added keys to the keyboard uh, of, of the piano. And that enabled you to have not just a buzz, but a buzz and a different buzz and put those sort of sounds together. And that, that built a platform that you could then use smarts, intelligence, to uh, uh, to take a microphone signal that is just a bunch of voltages, uh, uh, voltages that go up and down and up and down. What do you do with those things? It was, I guess, what the big, the big quantum leap was. So it went from the single-channel devices that just buzzed to multi-channel devices that were just incredible engineering that were put into the air, but they weren't used to their... Uh, how they should have been used. Uh, there, there were some really smart guesses on how how they should use them, but after quite a quite a number of years of study, they ended up with a particular method of of applying the, the electrical stimulation, and uh, and that really changed things. It, it went from people sort of being able to understand speech. When I first started working for that company, cochlear it was it was really remarkable if someone could speak on the telephone. Uh, you would want to talk to them and you know, sort of work out what formula they were using in their head to, to uh, be able to converse on the phone. But now it's completely normal to do. Um, so we got to that point through this, this technique called sound processing strategies. But things haven't changed a huge amount since then. Now, they've, they've done a lot of work with um, being able to operate in noise. So if you go to a party and you're trying to use a cochlear implant... Uh, I actually know someone that has a cochlear implant, and I'm in my 50s now, and and I have trouble hearing in noise myself. But this person that has a, has actually two cochlear implants, he could hear absolutely everything, uh, and so he could he has better hearing than me in certain situations because he has cochlear implants. So, so we're not quite to the point where uh, music is is playable in. Uh, some people do enjoy it but it's possibly because they remember what the what the sound was and their their brain fills in the blanks uh, i kind of doubt that if you heard some new song that that it would just be really pleasing to you uh, because of the the limitations of the number of say the keys on the keyboard you know
0: maybe some type of techno would sound about the same possibly yeah 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 so um
1: so we're not right we're not to the, that point where it's exactly the same as the hearing that that uh, normally hearing people enjoy but it's it's amazing actually you know what they're, what they're able to do um it's i think if if you had the choice of um being deaf or not deaf uh with with these devices the I mean, the answer for me would be absolutely you would just get one uh, it, it's there's no question anymore it used to be in the very early days that you could actually have a question whether or not it's worth it but it's definitely worth it now it seems like
0: it sounds like uh, from what you're saying that actually many of the advances are on the software side uh, are there limitations uh, at the level of the surgery what people can do i mean does does the surgeon have to connect individual electrodes or, or how, how does it work at that level
1: so the the implant itself has has built in uh, in the case of the the australian one uh, it's built in sydney it, it's there 22 Channels or 22 little electric, uh, metal contacts made out of platinum. So those are the equivalent of the keys on the keyboard. And uh, mm. and yes, you're exactly right about the software. If I went up to a keyboard and started playing, you know, people would cover their ears and leave the room. But if someone skilled it at doing that uh, played mm. it, it's it's pleasurable and it and it makes sense. So what they've what they've eventually come to be able to do is is to have that that ability to take that microphone sound and translate it into electrical stimulation. And uh, uh, but it's primarily the um, the software that's making the big differences now. Uh, the big technological change that happened in the I guess mid to late nineteen eighties was um, was the ability to make these multi channel devices. Uh, now that that platform is built. The platform that does on, or the the, uh, the additional work on top of it, has primarily been in the software, making the devices more reliable, uh, but not necessarily changing the number of electrodes. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons for that, is that um, when you get your electrodes closer and closer together, they sort of stimulate the same nerve cells. So the one next to it stimulates the uh, the same one that you're trying to stimulate, and and the closer you get. The less difference there is between the two stimulations so so that spacing uh, is, seems to be about just about right just sort of at the limit the, that uh, you can deliver right
0: now i i wanted to ask um uh, one thing is have you um have you witnessed people turning on their hearing for the first time have you have you been Able to witness that yourself?
1: Uh, not in person, but you can have a look on YouTube, and there are lots of people that have recorded it, and it's really emotional and and just astonishing. Sometimes, you know, particularly babies that have never heard their parents you know, switch these things on, and all of a sudden they, you know, they've probably felt the vibrations of their voice, um, but then all of a sudden they, you know, they sort of realize, oh, that's that's yeah. the actual sound. And, um, I, I think it's it's probably one of those things where they, they have a box of tissues on the desk when they're setting it up and because it's probably everybody uses it. It's, it would be a really life changing moment when that switches on, I think.
0: Yeah. I I just wonder how it feels for you to know that your research goes directly into helping actual people. I mean, that's very cool. In, in my opinion about uh, it's a nice aspect of what you do.
1: Yeah, it's, It's actually something I've missed a lot. We, we used to, um, when I worked at this company, uh, cochlear, it was. Um, you'd have kids coming in for their tune-ups, if you will. You know the uh, the adjustments of the parameters of their of their stimulation, and and it was really rewarding to see. And then when I left there to go work on vision, uh, the the patient sort of connection was uh, what we found is decades away, and uh, so that that, that uh, instant. I guess in, instant uh, feedback. I guess we had with uh, with cochlear implants, where you could see people benefiting from it directly. That that was that was really quite wonderful. But uh, we're not quite yet there yet with vision prosthetics yet.
0: Yeah, it's gonna come. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I I wanted to ask just before jumping onto the um, I I talking about eyes. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, on the topic of when people first turn on their prosthetic it, is the sound they hear, um, still completely, is it completely garbled, and their brain has to learn or, or how, how does that work out?
1: Uh, I guess it depends on whether or not you've heard before. If you, um, okay. if you know what sound is supposed to be like, um, I, I sat next to a woman on a train once that had cochlear implants and, uh, I it was still when I worked for the company. I pulled out my business card and I showed it to her, and and we had this great conversation uh, on a on a train journey up to the central coast. And she was explaining what it was like uh, to have this cochlear implant. And she said, you know, "My neighbor, uh, everybody seems to think that they sound like Donald Duck when you when you turn these things on." She said, "My my neighbor sounded like Donald Duck. My husband sounded like Donald Duck. My kids sounded like Donald Duck. But all of a sudden." She started to notice that there was a difference between Donald Duck, the neighbor and Donald Duck, the husband and the kids and whatnot. And eventually she said they just sort of separated into their own individualness, I guess. And uh, uh, she said, now when I hear them, they sound exactly like they they sounded before she went deaf and i just found that amazing and but there's not enough going back to this keyboard analogy there there aren't enough keys in the keyboard to um you know, 22 channels to give that full spectrum of sound so that's the brain filling in all the gaps and saying all right well that sort of buzzing and popping sound should sound like smooth speech and so the brain just does that in real time and, and, uh, and i think the, She's. She said there is no difference now, in her opinion, to the sound that she heard before and the sound now, for speeches. Speech anyway.
0: It's uh, on the um, going back a bit to when you were talking about your friend being able to hear in uh, in loud parties better than you. Um, one thing I was curious about is, you know, you could get to the point where this becomes where maybe not better than human hearing, but where you have other abilities. So, for example, I know that people in cinemas can dial their uh, their implant into uh so they're not listening to the speakers but they're listening to um a radio signal. Uh-huh. And I was wondering, you know, could could people with hearing aids, you know, hear deeper sounds or could could they dial into a police scanner or something along like these lines? Are there are some benefits.
1: Yeah. yeah, they just started um the, the company in Sydney, they, they've just started recently having uh, Bluetooth connections to telephones. So I think they first started with iPhones, and then they moved on to Android phones more recently. And you just have, it's its like a Bluetooth headset, but it's built into your head and you don't have to have any wires connecting between that and your, uh, and your implant. So uh, yeah, I think they're already there so that you can have conversations uh, completely uh, completely wireless and uh and sounds that no one else can hear
0: that's very cool Uh, so um well i guess you could also turn turn off your your implant if you want to get some sleep or you don't want to be distracted in an exam or something that's (laughs) That's right
1: yeah yeah Yeah, my wife someone's my wife's grandmother used to uh, have hearing aids, and, and she said they were the best things ever. She could just switch them off when the, when the grandchildren got really, really loud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe uh, in the interest of time, we should jump into uh, some of uh, your more recent work in Bionic Eyes. And um, what I wanted to ask you to start with is, you know, how much more difficult is this as a problem uh, than, than hearing?
1: Yeah, oh, it's it's different, difficult on a number of levels. So going back again to this keyboard, you have 22 keys on a keyboard with um, with a cochlear implant. If you counted the number of, of light-sensitive cells in your eye, it would be in the millions. And then they, they sort of converge to around about a million cables that go down the optic nerve. And so if, if you can think about... The different sounds in a in a musical uh, song, and and try and compress that to 22. It's the same sort of problem with vision. You're going from a million to some number, and that some number is limited by engineering ability, the ability to put in an electrode, uh, the ability of, of the electrical charge to deliver enough current to the to the nerves, and then that overlapping issue that I was talking about with cochlear implants, where you get the electrodes too close together and then they sort of stimulate the same the same thing so i'd say it's it's a lot different from that technological perspective um, but we can still draw upon the, the lessons learned so cochlear implants sort of spun out of co- of, uh, of um, uh, pacemakers pacemakers had to have this electrical uh, circuit inside the body that lasted for a very long time Cochlear implants took that to the next level where they made that same sort of thing smaller, but with more channels that come out of the, the box. Um, and we're doing that again, sort of the, the, next, the next level there. Now that's the technology side. Now the, the uptake side where, where we were talking before about cochlear implants being something that if I went deaf, I would just get one. It wouldn't be a question. Um, with visual prosthetics, I don't know if we're there yet. It's sort of like where where cochlear implants were in the very early days, where maybe the technology platform is there, but the method to translate instead of a microphone, but from a camera into a into a set of instructions to give to an implant to stimulate things. Uh, we're not there yet. We don't really know what that magic code is to uh, to convey vision and and to be able to uh, to make it enjoyable. So if if you look at the first generation of, of visual prosthetics, and there have been people that have been, been implanted with bionic eyes, they, uh, uh, they kind of don't enjoy them that much. And because of that, those limitations in the technology, I think, and, and, and it could also be that, that algorithm, the, the software that, uh, that could, there could be a breakthrough like there was in around 1996 in cochlear implants where it went from not very good to really good very quickly. Uh, so we don't know we don't know what we're no, what we don't know you know we don't know where what that magic formula is and we don't even know if there is a magic formula um, but where things are now is people are trying to develop more channels so that we can manage this crosstalk between the electrodes um, also work on the algorithms to see how best are these things delivered and trying to understand what people actually want um, it's it's kind of tricky to get um, volunteers for these these projects because of management of expectations uh, there was a sh- television show in the 1970s called the 6 million dollar man and it had um, this guy that had a horrible accident and he got a bionic eye but he could see perfectly into the next city it was uh, you know just completely far fetched and people around about that age that might have seen that television program they might expect that a bionic eye can do that and it definitely can't at this point in time Maybe someday, but not yet. So managing those expectations is, is difficult and, and you don't really have a product that people will want to buy unless there's someone raving about it saying, look at how great this is.
0: So if, if expectations were high, does that mean... So in the beginning, did people have high expectations or did they think you were crazy? Did you get lots of support initially? or uh,
1: I think it's such a emotive thing that I didn't have... Too much trouble uh, talking people into the idea that there was a, uh, you know, there's some possibility of doing this. Now a lot of people said, "Oh, well, don't bother." Her. You know, it's it's been tried and nobody nobody was able to do it. But yeah, it wasn't wasn't so much trying to get people to believe in it. It was it was actually delivering. It's it's the hard part you know, delivering those uh, the potential. I guess of what you what you think you should be able to deliver
0: relative to what's possible right now. So, so what is the actual device you're building? What, could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Okay, so it's, uh, we call it the Phoenix 99 and, the, and Phoenix is something that rises from the ashes. And the reason we think we've risen from the ashes is because of the way that the money comes with, uh, uh, with research. Uh, you get a grant, you run through that grant, you get to where you, you know, as far as you possibly can and then the money stops. It, you don't lose your funding, it just ends. It's not a it's it's got a finite cycle to it. And then then you need f- to find other other mechanisms of funding. So several times throughout the project we've got to the end of our funding and you sort of go what next? And then all of a sudden there's some opportunity that uh, that comes up and it uh, it allows you to go to the next next stage. So so this phoenix 99 device that we have it has a number associated with a 99 which means there's a there 99 electrodes on it so you can imagine the television or the computer screen that you're looking at right now it uh what are they sort of the the very lowest resolution is 640 by 480 pixels so it's a million at least a million dots, uh, around a million dots. And uh, it, when you reduce that to 100, you can imagine what sort of pixel uh, pictures you can convey. Not a lot. Uh, now you can... Mario. Mario, original Mario. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Letters, um, outlines of doorways, uh, light and dark, which is important for people. Um, so it's not nothing, but it's not everything. And I think people's expectations about everything is, is, has to be managed really carefully. But um, the device, it, uh, it, it's a two-part device, and the reason it's a two-part device is because we want to be able to expand it later. So the first part of it is, a, is very much like a cochlear implant. It sits behind the ear. It's implanted behind the ear, and it has uh, some electronics in it that receives a radio signal from outside. Uh, it also receives power from outside in the same way that uh, uh, mobile telephones now can have this wireless charging. You just sort of throw it onto a table and uh, that's that's using this principle called inductance. And uh, So yeah. you get the power across from the inductance and you can turn on and off that signal to, to send data through. Uh, or you can vary the voltage on that signal to get data through. So that part behind the ear receives instructions. It then works out how much current is the stimulation going to require? And it sends that precise amount of current down uh, two wires that go from behind the ear to the eye. And those uh, that current that's sent drives this other, a uh, second implant. Uh, the second implant does uh, essentially multiplexing. It will take the signal that comes down this little two-wire uh, cable, and it will say, all right, well, it's telling me that I need to stimulate electrode number 73 with this much current for this much this, this long of period. Um, and then it will repeat that and repeat that and repeat that very much like, a, a, I'm not quite sure how it works with, uh, with live video these days, but in the olden days when you had um, a movie, you would have a frame and then another frame and another frame. And if those frames sort of flashed in front of your face quickly enough, it would look like continuous mm-hmm. motion and that's uh, that's sort of how we we put together the software now we have um pixels that make up the sort of dots inside the frame the frame mm-hmm. itself shows a visual scene and then the next frame will show how that visual scene has changed since the last frame and uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's how this the, the uh, that's our way of, of structuring the uh, uh the software now, it could be that there's a totally different way of, of structuring that software that more, is more effective. We just haven't discovered it yet. So, uh, so this so what, device is.
0: So, what I understand, you, you have an item in the eye itself and then mm-hmm. something behind the ear, and that eye stimulates the retina.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, so the implant that's in the eye has uh, has some electronics associated with it, and it has a little cable that goes from the outside of the eye into the. Sort of be beneath the white part of your eye called the sclera. Mm-hmm. Then underneath the sclera are some, uh, some bits of tissue that are associated with the retina. There's something called the retinal pigment epithelium. There's the choroid and there's, um, uh, and there's the neural network that makes up the retina itself. And we're stimulating behind the choroid and going through the choroid and into these nerve cells. Um, and it, it's, it seems to be fairly effective. Um, because we're behind this layer that's called the choroid, it means that we're slightly further away than we might like to be with, um, uh, with the distance between the electrodes and the nerves that we're trying to stimulate. That has good aspects and bad aspects to it. Uh, the good aspect is that if, uh, if you have something that happens, an electrochemical reaction on the surface of the electrodes, which does take place, uh, then if there's damage to the tissue, you're just damaging blood vessels you're not damaging neurons. Um, You could go directly into those neurons, but then you run the risk of those electrochemical reactions actually killing off the thing that you're trying to stimulate. So there's an advantage to being somewhat far away. And the same sort of thing is happening with cochlear implants. They're, uh, They're actually stimulating through a... a a very thin layer of bone that's made out of the the cochlea is is comprised of and so they're not directly touching the nerve cells that they're trying to stimulate when they uh, when they use these these things and so we're using the same
0: sort of principle um can i ask where where does the signal originate from do you need a, a camera as well or like the guy from star trek or how does that work
1: yeah you need a camera to capture the visual scene because what the disease that you might go blind from will kill off these, this layer of cells inside your eye called the photoreceptors. And the photoreceptors will take uh, photons and translate them into those uh, more or less electrical signals that go off to the brain and, uh, and are perceived as vision. Everything else works in, in particular diseases. Um, retinitis pigmentosa is one of them, and, and this one that we'll all get if we live long enough called age-related macular degeneration. Um, so it leaves this sort of neural network alive, but the very first layer of it, the photoreceptors, are dead. So what we need to do is bypass those photoreceptive layers and go to other cells that are inside that network. Um, so the two that are of most interest are the called the bipolar cells and the, uh, the retinal ganglion cells. So if we can stimulate either one of those or, or a combination of those things, which actually might be better... Uh, then you can convey spots of light that are perceptions that, uh, that people can sort of point out and draw. You know, what, what does it look like? And they get a piece of paper and they'll actually sketch it out for you. And uh, sometimes it looks like a star in the sky and sometimes it looks like um, a blob. Sometimes it looks like a puff of smoke. And, and managing all that, uh, if you can sort of think about that in terms of what it would sound like, Puff of smoke might sound different than the, than a spot of, uh, you know, just a single spot that looks like a star. Um, so in the visual sense, there's there's a lot of work to be done that that sort of controls those those perceptions you know, so that they become meaningful. If you can, uh, going back to the Mario uh, game, you're you're talking about you know, it's just a bunch of dots, and those dots are configured in a certain way. And if we can configure them in, in a particular way, then you're you're all fine. But um, uh, but if you don't have control over those and the, the dot on the right is twice the size of the dot on the left, mm-hmm. then you don't really get much of an image out of that. Uh, or you have to learn how to how to make it make sense mm-hmm. to you. And that might be the same as that lady on the train I was talking to. The, the brain fills mm-hmm. in the gaps and figures it all out. Have you heard of,
0: many years ago, there, there was research where people would uh, put glasses on to invert their vision. And after living with these glasses for a week, they would be able to deal with it as though they had normal vision, riding bikes, living their daily lives. So there's there's some evidence, it seems, that your brain should be able to deal with a scrambled image and reconstruct.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we're going to have to rely on that. And I, I'm sure that we rely on it with cochlear implants. There's at least some of that happening, uh, probably a huge amount of it happening. With with vision, I think it's, um, it's probably... Helping even with the, these early days uh, versions of, of the implants, uh, I've I've seen videos of people that have been fitted with these devices, and they're able to sort of sit at a, a table setting, and they'll be able to pick out where the glass of water is, where the where the fork is, or the knife is, and that sort of thing. And you know that that's knowledge of the of what a place setting should look like, um, uh, augmented by some sort of visual input that you can get from this device. So they're, they're not actually seeing, they're having a combination of seeing, drawing upon their memory, filling in the gaps mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and finding their way that way.
0: It's still very, very cool. It, one one question is, is um, I'm guessing the electrodes are much larger than individual color receptors, right? There's going to be no color to this?
1: Yeah. So if we work out the, the code for what color is, um, and I, I'm, I'm sure someone will say they know it, but I don't know if anybody really knows what this code is, uh, because it, it has to sort of converge down. So you'd have, uh, you'd have a photoreceptive cell that, that is, um, say sensitive to blue or green or red or something like that. And, and it gets activated. It activates another nerve cell that would also be activated by another color photoreceptor. And then it then connects to uh, a ganglion cell. And then there are these other cells called horizontal cells and amacrine cells that sort of communicate sideways. And it gets horribly complex on how you would get this signal that is supposed to convey a dot that is yellow or a dot that's blue um, relative to like a, a, a puff of smoke sort of thing, where it's dark in the middle and light on the outside and it might be yellow or blue or something like that. It We don't have the code, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. and someone will figure it out someday. And mm-hmm. maybe then we can convey vision. Uh, I'm sorry, with uh, colors. Uh, there have been some hints. Uh, there's, a, there's a company in the United States, I think it's it's just sort of because of the, the lack of um uh, enthusiasm, I think, for their for their product, they've, they've sort of gone into hibernation or, or maybe even out of business, but they, they would present things at scientific conferences, and at the end of them, they would have these little teasers, a video of one of their patients that would be fitted with a bionic eye, and they would, uh, they would put on the, a video screen a color, and they somehow would be able to tell you what color it was. Now, it could be that um, the color blue is three flashes um, instead of four flashes and the color red is four flashes instead of five flashes and uh, tricks like that but eventually if you get to learn these sort of things y- you might just come to know that four flashes equals red and mm-hmm. uh, and if your brain works quick- quickly enough it might eventually come to the point where there's no difference between the red that you used to see and the red you see now with, uh, with the equivalent of four mm-hmm. flashes so uh, a whole lot of unlocking of brain power that, uh, that we could uh, tap into. I think.
0: So, if you were a betting man, is this something you think is coming on the horizon? In you know, if I gave you fifty years, uh, this is something that is going to be unlocked.
1: I think so. Uh, with cochlear implants, the platform that I was talking about—you know, you have a you have a device that just accepts commands. It's uh, it's sort of like those. Um, uh, sort of like Chromebooks are now. Chromebooks just—they require connection to the internet, and uh, and you have to get all the information from the internet instead of from the actual local machine. So, in a, in a sense, those those cochlear implants and today's bionic eyes are are these sort of dumb terminals. You just tell them what to do, uh, and if you can tell them what to do and they can respond to those instructions, then you have this, this vast range of things that you could tell it to do. And if you can unlock that code, um, and someone might do it and maybe they've already done it, um, with the the thing I was talking about with the company Mm -hmm. in the U S and, uh, and then I think, yes, you could, you could potentially have blue and red and yellow side by side and, and be able to have, uh, Maybe all shades in the the, or all colors in the middle, uh, somehow conveyed. I I just don't I don't know the formula. Maybe someone does. Maybe someone will learn it. But I think in fifty years that yeah you you probably have something like that.
0: This must be super exciting for people who are blind hearing about these developments. I I wanted to ask um why why do you put your implant. In the eye, what, what's what's the benefit over that over you know directly uh, connecting with the visual cortex? Uh, yeah. For example,
1: they did some work. Uh, a fellow by the name of Giles Brindley um, in London in the nineteen, know, was it? I think it was about nineteen sixty-eight or nine, and he implanted uh, I think it was about 80, 80 electrodes into the visual cortex uh, of a, a few different patients. And they saw spots of light, and that was really set the world on fire when, when, he, uh, when he reported on this stuff. You know, it was probably the first, or it was the first time a sense could be sort of duplicated in, in an electronic way. But the, the issue was that if you, if you sort of take your hand, the palm of your hand and even your fingers, and you sort of put it on the back of your head, that's the whole area of your brain that uh, is dedicated to vision. So, you can imagine trying to have high resolution uh, electrodes uh, close together, metallic things over that whole shape. You know, I'm looking at my hand now and it's, uh, uh looks like about 120 millimeters long and about 85 millimeters wide. And if you're going to space them at, uh, half a millimeter each, that's, that's a lot of electrodes, a lot of wires to get to places. Um, so it's, it's sort of the. It's like how a stream ends up into the ocean. If you can tap into the stream, which is at the retina, you can uh, maybe have a lot more control over what's in that uh, in that stream than the influence you might have in the whole ocean. So the, the if the visual cortex is the ocean, and the and at certain parts of the retina are the stream. Uh, the control is better. Uh, we think at the. Uh, uh, at, at the sort of source, I guess you'd say. Um, now there are people that are still working on this. In, in fact, at, uh, at Monash University in Melbourne, uh, they're they're working on these things they call tiles that they put they inject them into uh, uh, into the uh, the brain tissue, and uh, uh, they've they've done some work in uh, preclinical studies, and it seems like it's it's a, a viable approach to get spots of light now. We can we can do deliver spots of light along in the retina. We can do it by stimulating the optic nerve. We can go to this area called the lateral geniculate nucleus, and all of these all of these locations along the visual pathway will produce a spot of light. So the, the production of a spot of light is one thing; using it is another. So I think it's in the, when you're talking about the visual cortex, it's the number of, of and and in the retina to, to a similar extent. It's the number of spots that you can deliver and how well you can modulate those things, how you can Mm -hmm. uh, make them go differently than another one.
0: To be honest, if I was a blind person going through a surgery to restore my vision, I'd prefer having a surgery not on my brain, uh, if possible, as well. Could could I ask, have there been clinical trials yet with the device you're working on?
1: Uh, Sort of. Um, So we had a, a... a very well-funded Australian government project uh, from 2010 until 2015. Um, in uh, I think it was about 2008, the government of Australia uh, had a, a, meeting, a meeting of meeting of the minds, and they wanted to uh, to work out where where the nation of Australia wanted to be scientifically and culturally in in the year 2020. So it was called the the 2020 summit. One of the things that came out of that 2020 summit was uh, to do something bold, and we had this really remarkable reputation in Australia to be able to, to make deaf people hear again, and the idea of making blind people see again was uh, was very attractive, and uh, and we were uh, we were one of uh, one of a team of uh, of research groups that was. Uh, uh, that contributed to a, a human trial clinical trial that uh, took place in uh, I think from about 2014 to uh, 2000 early early 2016, I believe. So they were there, there was no implanted electronics in the in those. it was uh, uh, the electrodes that we talked about before uh, with a, the cable that we talked about before, but with all of each, each individual electrode having its own individual wire, and then it would go to a little plug in the back of someone's head that was actually sticking out through the skin, and you could connect that to electronics in the laboratory. And um, there there were three people that were implanted with this. And one of them did quite remarkably well. Uh, I think all three of them, I know all three of them, could see something. They could see dots. Okay. And... Uh, uh, but one of them just was able to make sense out of those dots uh, better than the other people. And uh, so that, that was, it was very encouraging. It was, to, it was the first time that a, what we call a supercoroidal implant, that uh, was what we were working on and still are working on, um, was was demonstrated as being effective in, in being able to produce these spots of light. And uh, so there's a platform there and uh, you could modulate the, uh, the size and, and do various things with the, uh, with the spots of light. But, but again, it's, it's like that cochlear implant. They could make a buzz sound. They could make another buzz sound mm-hmm. that's different than the other buzz sound. And, um, but it was how you put those things together that was key. So I think we're, we're, we're at the early stages with the platform, but in the absolute infancy of what can be done with the, with the, um, uh, the software and on mm-hmm. how you deliver these things. What's the right code what's the right sequence of events that takes place
0: So the proof of principle is actually there and and so uh, what could this person uh, see could they read a, a large letter what, what what was the limit
1: yeah it's um, it's very subjective I think on um, uh, because the tests that you have are sort of designed to well it, it's not. Um, I'm uh, probably being unfair, but you you design a test that you think they're probably going to be able to pass. You wouldn't sort of give okay. them war and peace and say, you know, what what's on page seven? Um,
0: yeah, after all, you want funding at the end of the day.
1: That's right. So so if you have a, a big video screen and you're projecting the letter E, uh, one measure of success could be, can you tell us where the light part of the E is relative to the dark part of the E? Um, and mm-hmm. that... At least one of the patients could do that. Uh, now, t- taking a step back and saying, was it an E? I actually think she could tell that. I think she could tell okay. at least similar characters might look the same. You know, like a, a, an E and an F might look almost identical. Uh, but I think she could probably tell the difference between, let's say, a, a, an O and a T or, you know, something that's distinctly okay. different. Uh, but not the level of detail because it it was when I said that there was a cable for each um, or a wire for each electrode there was uh, there were only 20 electrodes uh, right because the the next step which is something that they're they're working on it's it's a separate research group but uh, something they're working on now is is actually connecting cochlear implants to a visual prosthetic Uh, Mm -hmm. and so they're limited by the number of channels that they can stimulate to 22 so so they're only 20 Twenty wire or 10, twenty contacts in these in these electrodes, so you're limited by very limited by the number of, uh, of contacts that you have, or the number of options that you have in the stimulation.
0: So, did you oversee that particular experiment? Did you did did you need the box of tissues? Was she ecstatic? Yeah. Uh,
1: I wasn't actually there, uh, so it was it was done at the at uh, Melbourne University Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital um, with uh, a. Part of part of the overall team, uh, so we were we were in we were in the technology development side of things, and they were in the clinical side of things, and and uh, so I wasn't physically present in the room. I met I met the lady a couple times that uh, that did really well, uh, really nice lady that uh, uh, I believe she was a nurse before, so she had this sort of medical interest in in, in doing this. So it was um, and it was exciting for us to to. Understand that you know that, that we're in this whole concept of this what we call suprachoroidal stimulation. That was something we worked on for years and years. We we were putting it in different locations of the uh, of the retina, uh, putting it on the top of the retina, trying to detach the retina, put it underneath the retina. But then uh, a, a Korean surgeon that uh, uh, and a friend of mine uh, named Jong Mo Seo in uh, uh, Seoul National University, he, he came to visit visit me and and uh, said do once you have a, have a look at this, we've been doing this in rabbits, and uh, we think it's got some promise. So we started we started studying the suprachoroidal space. So, so I guess the contribution that we made was uh, uh, you know pursuit of that as the, the location that, that we should stimulate. Um, but the rest of it was uh, you know this, this
0: clinical team in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realize our time is running out. How, how much more time do you have, just so I can gauge? Because I've got a, a couple more questions, but I could also wrap up depending on on how you're feeling about things. Okay,
1: um, I do have something at nine thirty, so I've got seven more minutes, but I could
0: probably be five minutes late to that. Uh, so okay, I'll I'll wrap it into three quick questions. Okay. So the, the first thing I wanted to know was, um, you know, it sounds like for these lecturers, you need exposed metal. Yeah. So how do you have a device? That can survive long term when you've got ex- don't things rust don't things it seems like a difficult problem
1: yeah uh, so we've learned a lot f- over the decades with um, with other medical devices so, um, uh, the first first device that lasted that was meant to last for a long time active device like electronic device that uh, was meant to last for a long time is the, the pacemaker the cardiac pacemaker um, in Australia, they made some really important breakthroughs on being able to keep the electronics viable for a long, long period of time by making a, a, a hermetic capsule, like a, a sealed chamber that the electronics went into. And that was done with titanium and ceramic and, uh, uh, and silicones and things like that. So we, we learned that silicone and, and ceramic and, and titanium were pretty good materials to, to use. And then the electrode materials um, there's a lot of a lot of study that goes on to uh, what sort of metal should you use Uh, platinum is is quite a good uh, electrode material not necessarily for its electrochemical properties but for the combination of its electrochemical properties and its ability to live in the body for a very long period of time Uh, so it's not the best electrode that there is but it's um, it's perhaps the best combination of that balance between safety and, and and efficacy and that sort of thing. So we knew going into the Eye project that that platinum, titanium, uh, ceramic, and and a few other materials were in uh, silicones were were really quite good body-wise uh, in in those applications in cardiac applications and cochlear implant applications, etc. So we thought we had a pretty good chance that that in the vision uh, visionary that we'd be able to uh, uh, to have uh, have those materials sit there. There's also uh, in World War II there were these planes called the Spitfire, and they had uh, canopies that were made out of uh, something called polymethyl methacrylate, which is uh, people know it as uh, perspex or uh, plexiglass in the U.S. and the and the pilots would get shot. You know the, the canopies would get shot up by the Germans, and the and little fragments would go into their eyes, and nothing would happen. The, this polymethyl methacrylate stuff would just float around in there, and and there are a couple of reasons for that. the the um, The eye is a uh, what we call a privileged site. Uh, the brain is another one, and uh, the reason, well, we think evolutionary speaking, uh, that uh, that the reason for that is if you if you get sick, you get an inflammation. Uh, things swell to sort of enhance the uh, the the uh, recovery process. You, know, you you break your bone or you hit your hit your arm, it's going to swell up, uh, and that's part of the part of the response to the injury. But if you had this happening in your eyes, you wouldn't be able to see. And if you had it happening in your brain, you wouldn't be able to see. It's actually in your genitalia as well; you wouldn't be able to reproduce. So, evolutionary speaking, you you um, you've got these privileged sites in your body, and the eye is one of them. So uh, so we. We seem to be able to get away with a little bit more in the eye than we can in other places. Um, we did a study on how well these electrodes behaved inside the eye for a long period of time. And the histologists, the people that look at the, you know, the, the tissue after, after you uh, finish the, the experiment, they were looking at it just kind of finding it a bit remarkable that it was so mild the the response you know basically you put something foreign in the body and the body says no you can't be there uh we're going to destroy you and if they can't destroy you what they'll do is what the immune system will do is sort of wrap tissue around that that foreign thing and uh, and make it so that they can just sort of live together and if you if you ever work with wood uh you, you get a splinter if you've ever seen that splinter when it eventually comes out of your finger, it's it's sort of encapsulated in some tissue. And that's the immune system just saying, well, you don't belong here. Uh, I'm going to get rid of you. And then giving up after a while saying, well, okay, you're stuck in there pretty good. So what I'm going to do is wrap some tissue around you that looks like me. That doesn't happen so much in the eye. It does happen a little bit, but not not anywhere to the same extent. So, so we think we might be able to get away with some other materials in the eye. We just haven't... Uh, we haven't explored a great deal of other other options. So we're taking the conservative option and saying, it works well with cochlear implants works well with pacemakers, let's not rock the boat, we've got enough problems to solve. Let's, uh, let's use
0: those materials. It's nice that nature throws you a bone in that regard. Another question along these lines, when children are growing, are they born with the adult size eye? or, Or is this something where you'll have to wait till later in life for the implant? no
1: it's um i believe it's the only thing in the in the body that doesn't change size uh,
0: nature's throwing you bone after bone this this is something that's gonna this
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and and that's been a kind of a big challenge for cochlear implants and you, know, you, you put this device in when uh, i think they do it as as young as four months now of age so as soon as they're diagnosed with uh, with, with hearing impairment they'll, they'll put in a cochlear implant um, so the head's gonna change in size by probably a factor of maybe three or so, um, mm-hmm. so you got you got to compensate for that. So they have like little flexible cables and things like that that they will be able to stretch and grow. So we don't have that particular problem, uh, but we also don't have that particular problem because we're treating diseases of, um, of degeneration, so most of these people that we would be able to treat have seen at one point in their lifetime, mm-hmm. um, probably into their 40s or so. Um, and uh, So, implanting children is a whole different thing and, and maybe when uh, I should have answered when you asked the question about the visual cortex, it, it might be that the disease that, that makes the person go blind or the injury that makes the person go blind leaves the visual cortex as the only option because if you don't have an optic nerve that works, you can't do anything in the retina and you can't do anything in the optic nerve, you have to go to that higher order center of the, the visual cortex and, and stimulate there
0: is is uh, just rushing over some questions in the interest of time um um just fin- i want to finish on uh, what the future holds a little bit so um in in 10 years uh so right now you have uh, devices that are looking at 99 pixels uh in 10 years time or or even at the end of your career what do you hope to see what's what's realistic and what's the dream
1: yeah Okay, I I think the most realistic thing that's going to happen um, is something that, that when when this company I worked for Cochlear in Sydney w- was floated onto the share market, there was a um, there's a process when you sell a company or make a public a, a company public called due diligence, and we had to explore all the possibilities or as many possibilities as we could think of of how this company might be affected uh, in the future and. In those days, probably around 1997 or something like that, or so, sorry, 95 or so, stem cells were starting to be the rage. They were starting to say, well, stem cells are going to cure absolutely everything. And uh, so that was a, a big flag to, to warn people about. And you can say, look, you can invest all your money into this cochlear implant company, but tomorrow someone might come out with this stem cell treatment that, uh, that actually makes cochlear implants obsolete. I think a lot of us thought that this was a couple years away, and now it's nearly 30 years later, and it hasn't happened. Uh, it doesn't look like it's close to happening yet, but we might get there someday. Now, something is happening, actually happening, um, that is really exciting, and it's genetic, genetic therapies for for um, overcoming blindness. Now, I still think that they'll... The, the first person whose vision is, is um, restored for certain diseases, retinitis pigmentosa, macular degeneration, et cetera, will probably be uh, someone with a visual prosthetic, you know, an electrical stimulation system. But looking at crystal ball into the future, I, I think the future is probably, and um, how many decades into the future, I don't know, but it's probably these genetic therapies uh, where you get an injection, um, there's a, a virus, Um, that's been modified, very much like the the COVID-19 vaccines that have been proposed. It gets into the cells that you need to be modified, delivers some cargo, and that cargo is in the form of a a genetic material, and changes the the deteriorating cells into something else uh, that's not deteriorating or becomes light sensitive or something like that. So some really exciting things happening there. And it could be that there's a combination of things that the the electrical stimulation where you can't get that ultra fine point of stimulation, you you stimulate many cells simultaneously. It might be that that's the the catalyst or the, the uh, driving force for these cells to heal. You might be able to put um, a combination of a visual prosthesis in that does electrical stimulation that, and the electrical stimulation itself, uh, causes either the release of, these, of this genetic material or causes the recovery of these cells to, uh, uh, to take place. So very speculative, um, but some really exciting stuff happening with uh, some very, very rare diseases right now um, that uh, were previously uh, incurable and made people go extremely blind uh, and they're recovering. And it's, it's really exciting.
0: That's really cool. I I uh, I'm, I want to just finish off with just a few uh, quick sort of since I started off saying this is sort of a sci-fi uh, type of research. Um, back to your the cures you're working on, you know I, it, I I'm I'm thinking you know you could do some really cool things. You could have a uh, head, head cinema, Kopf Kino, you'd say in German. Uh, mm-hmm. If, if you, if you can read someone's optic nerve uh, as well as, uh, as well as uh, stimulate the optic nerve, then maybe you could record what someone is seeing with their eyes, uh, infrared vision, uh, seeing more colors, augmented reality, uh, you know, having a, clock down in the bottom left of your vision it, it seems like there's many cool things that you could uh uh you know since you want funding <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah the sky's the limit for what you could deliver uh you don't need
1: a camera uh you know you could you could be delivering text or you could be sending emails or all sorts of things that uh, that you could be doing delivering movies yeah kopfkino and <laughs> all sorts of stuff um yeah, if you if you had a movie that you wanted to convey, uh, that bypasses you know all the uh, all the incoming electronics, uh, and and you could just play play your little MP4 and uh, uh, to the to the implant itself, very much like what they're doing with cochlear implants now with phone calls and other sounds.
0: Yeah, escaped sapiens. <laughs>